Again, it is a true blessing for me to be here. I have known John and Marla for several years. I was at Grace Prez in Douglasville, where John and Marla and Mary and Hans were for a number of years, and had the privilege of working with John for much of that. Uh, I told the Sunday school group that I do have my fair share of stories about John Payne, so uh, I'm happy to share them. I'm sure that you have some that you could share with me as well. But we are in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. If you want to take a Bible and turn there, as you are, let me say that this text is in a section that's often referred to as Isaiah's Apocalypse. It's highly symbolic. It directs our attention to the last day and what will happen when Christ returns. It's in the middle of a series of oracles, heavy on the judgment of God against the nations, which is one reason why this passage is so shocking. You do not expect the good news you find here. Before we read it, let me pray. O Father in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit to meet with us. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come down, that you would rend the heavens, and that you would meet with us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you, that we might know our Savior and our merciful Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. Will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. 
But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring low, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. We give praise to God for his holy word. As we think about this passage, there's an important question for us to consider. What had life been like for the people of God in Isaiah's day? One thing we know is that they had to endure the leadership of Ahaz. He imitated the nations around him. Second Kings 16, he worshipped idols, and he even sacrificed one of his children to false gods. The faithful had to, had to bear up with his sorry leadership. And there were looming geopolitical threats. Syria and Israel tried to coerce Judah into joining a coalition against Assyria. And when the southern kingdom refused, members of the alliance, they, they came against the nation. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, Assyria was on the move, a great power. They were invading Judah. What was life like for them? It was full of stress, struggle, and sorrow. It's much like our own. And for some, loneliness has set in. For others, relationships are breaking apart. Bank accounts are running dry. For many, times are tough. People feel as if they are about to fall apart. They're overwhelmed. And as believers, we are not immune to this. What are we to do amidst all the pressures of life? What did Isaiah do as he faced similar conditions? He praised the Lord. He worshiped God. Now, I know some might think, why in the world should I do that? Pastor, don't you see what's going on in my life, and you're telling me to worship God? Yes. And our text gives us reasons why we should. First, offer praise to God because the Lord is sufficient. The Lord is sufficient. Verses 1 through 5. Isaiah begins by announcing, look at verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise you. You catch the emphasis? This was personal for Isaiah. He was determined to bless the Lord despite his problems. Ungodliness was rampant. Nations were threatening And most people loathed Isaiah. They couldn't stand him. He was, by and large, a rejected prophet. And yet, he took his eyes off of his surroundings and directed them to God, and he worshipped. That's to be us. Why? Well, Isaiah said to the Lord, For you have done wonderful things. And that word wonderful, it refers to supernatural acts. Exodus chapter 12, 
It includes God delivering Israel from Pharaoh's mighty hands. Acts 2, his raising Christ from the dead. Titus 2, his regenerating of sinners. Isaiah 25, 1, these wonderful things were a part of God's plans, formed of old, faithful and sure. And they should compel us to praise God, irrespective of our circumstances. The Lord has worked supernaturally in us. Believer in Christ, He has exited you from Satan's power. He has canceled your sin debts. And He has made you spiritually alive. Praise the Lord then. Even when troubles envelop you. Don't be fixated on your situation. Don't be fixated on yourself. Focus on the Lord who is sufficient to do wonderful things. And Isaiah said do this also because, look at verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. Here we have a city that the prophet says, the Lord has destroyed. Isaiah 24.10, it's a wasted city. It's one that will not be rebuilt. Now, some connect this to the city of Jericho because the exact same thing is said of it. Others think that the city that's being referenced here is Babylon. But perhaps it's best to remember the genre that we're in. This is an apocalyptic section of Isaiah. And so the city is representative of something. The great Babylon, the city of man, and what will be concerning it. Which is the world in opposition, opposition to God will be no more. The Lord will make it so that, verse 3, strong peoples will glorify the Lord. And ruthless nations will fear him. Now you might sit there and think, what in the world does that mean? At the least, it's Philippians 2.10. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the sovereign of sovereigns. So that no matter how vehemently the nations rage against him, they cannot thwart his purposes. They will be overcome and compelled to honor him. But perhaps this is also a reference to the Lord's saving activity in the world. Because, did you notice in the text how it says, strong peoples will glorify him? Reminding us how the Lord turns his enemies into his friends. All through Christ and by the Spirit. Beloved, That's exactly what has happened to us, is it not? Once rebels, oh, but now redeemed. And how can this not make us sing and delight in God? We've been plucked from the the, the city that's doomed to destruction, brought into the kingdom of God all through Jesus Christ and His saving work. Here is a cause for praise. Think about it. If ruthless nations will honor the Lord, how much more should we who have been rescued out of them? Such saving truth should propel our praise. 
because the Lord is sufficient to redeem us. And if He can do that, what can He not do for us? But you know, there's something else here that should, should lead us to think about the sufficiency of God and how we can praise the Lord. It's that the Lord is our stronghold. But the prophet moves from considering the future to reflecting on the past. Isaiah says of the Lord, look at verse 4, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. Now, can you think of an example in the Bible where God clearly showed himself to be this way? I'll give you one. Do you remember the widow at Zarephath? 1 Kings chapter 17, she's on the verge of death. She only had enough flour and oil for one last meal for herself and, and her son. That was it. But the Lord supplied what was needed. The jar of flour and oil was given that wouldn't run out until the drought was finished. For her, God was, verse 4 of our text, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. How bad were her circumstances? How bad were Isaiah's? They were like a storm against a wall, verse 5, like heat in a dry place. Now, I wonder, have you ever seen those, those folks who work for the Weather Channel? And, and they have the, uh, the, the difficult task of standing in the midst of a hurricane. It's like 150 mile per hour winds, and they're being blown all over the place. Or maybe you've seen some reporters doing the same kind of thing in the middle of a desert, and it's in the summertime. It's blazing out there, and they're, they're fading, pouring with sweat. That's the sense here regarding the troubles that assail God's people. The storms of life can be hurricane strength. The heat of hardship can be melting. Maybe as you came in here this morning, you felt that way. As if you were about to be toppled by your concerns. They're blowing so hard against you that you're, you're barely hanging on. The sweltering nature of your trial has left you in a pool of, of sweaty despair. What do you do? You imitate Isaiah. You praise God. You worship Him. Because the prophet says of the Lord, verse 5, You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. In other words, the Lord is sufficient for every threat that comes your way. Uncertainty is about the future. Family tension. Work problems. Church troubles. Satanic onslaughts. Whatever they are. God is enough. Worrisome circumstances may be beating down upon you right at this moment. But God is able. God is able. 
Was he not able to save you in Christ and forgive your sins? Is he not able to help you now? Of course he is. And that means that you should praise him now and not focus on the squalls in your life. If you do, you will be toppled by them. Instead, bless the Lord. Delight in Him. And listen, do you know what you will find if you bless God? The Lord who is enough for you will enable you to stand no matter what comes against you. Praise the Lord amidst the pressures of life because He is sufficient. He is sufficient. There is another reason to worship God in this text. It's second, the Lord is victorious. The Lord is victorious. It's verses 6 through 8. I don't know if you are a sports fan. I am. Maybe you remember that in 2016, the LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers, they won the NBA Finals in dramatic fashion. Do you know what they did afterwards? Or how about this year's Super Bowl champions? What did they do afterwards? And maybe you're super into golf. Okay, what about the, the, the recent PGA Masters winner? What did he do? Each one of them, they ate a victory meal. They ate a victory meal. And it's something that's Actually, quite ancient. In Isaiah's day, one, when, when one army defeated another, often a, a grand dinner would follow. It communicated victory and, and security. The threat is no more. Let's feast. And that's what the prophet sees next. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And did you notice that this feast, it takes place on this mountain? Okay, what mountain? Well, it could be a reference to Isaiah 2 and the mountain of the house of the Lord, or Exodus 24, and the covenant renewal meal that took place at Mount Sinai, we actually don't know for sure. But whatever it is specifically, it certainly is more broadly a reference to a multitude that's drawn to the Lord, experiencing sweet fellowship with Him. And what does the text say regarding who will be there? Verse 6, all people, that is all types of people, Jew and Gentile, the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what will they be doing? Eating and drinking, rich, scrumptious food, well-aged, refined wine. No expense is held back. Only the finest is given. What do we learn here from that? I'll tell you one thing. God likes food and drink. He created it after all, right? And the Bible is full of situations where people enjoy a good meal. 
Genesis 19, Abraham and the three celestial guests. John 2, Jesus at the wedding in Canaan. And here in our text, there's delectable fare and drink, which Revelation 19 identifies as the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast of feasts, which means for us, it's okay for us to enjoy food and drink. Yes, in moderation, kids, you not too many cookies, okay? Just maybe just one or two. Ask your parents. It's okay for us to enjoy these things. Just enjoy them in God's way. Because that's what we'll be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to the way one writer puts it. Those who those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because Sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. We will feast in the house of Zion. It's okay to enjoy these good gifts that God has given us now. But we have to understand something really important here. The depth of enjoyment that we can have in this life can only be fully realized by remembering what this great meal in Isaiah 25, 6 represents. Victory. Victory. God will win. And we through Him. Safety and security will be known. There will be feasting like never before. What will the Lord be victorious over? A last enemy. A paralyzing foe. One that seemingly hunts us. Verse 6 or verse 7, it covers all peoples. It's like a dark shadow. It's always there. A veil spread over the nations, a cloud so thick that no light from below can pierce it. It's death. It's death. And death flies in the face of modern mantras like fame, I'm going to live forever. Some of you know that song. And yet, very soberly, Death's fact does jolt us. We naturally want to distract ourselves from it with entertainment or work. But when bodies begin to deteriorate, cancer sets in, or viruses infect, we see death for what it is. Everywhere. And powerful. Just ask the doctors and nurses working in our hospitals. At times, they feel helpless. Death is an enemy that's stronger than all of us. And ourselves, we cannot master it. We cannot stop it. But death is not more powerful than God. Isaiah says there is coming a day when, look at verse 8, the Lord will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. There will be a time when death itself will die. 
and all mourning from it will end. To really grasp what the prophet is saying, we have to we have to get an important exegetical point from this text. The things God will do in verses six through eight appear to be future oriented, right? I mean, just look at verses six through eight. Do you see all the the wills in that text? The victory he brings is pointing forward to what will be. But in the Hebrew, most of the verbs in 6 through 8 are past tense, denoting what God has done. So here's a question. Why past tense verbs in a section focused on the future? Well, at the very least, to give us certainty concerning death's demise. The grave will have its own grave. God assures it, and it is so certain that He speaks of it as if it has already happened. And yet, we're also reminded here of how death's downfall doesn't begin in the future, at the end of days. Death's downfall has already started in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his cross and empty tomb, Jesus began to hammer the nails into death's coffin. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56, Jesus ripped out death's stinger. Through Isaiah 25, verse 8, his taking away the reproach of his people. Do you know what that means? Him taking away the reproach of his people? Think about it like this. The grave's accusations say to you and me, you're helpless. You're hopeless. You're hell-bound. But Jesus came and he zipped death's lips so that now you hear words like, Beloved, forgiven, child of God, Jesus brought victory past tense, ensuring victory future tense, which tells you, believer in Christ, present tense, you don't have to fear death or how it will come or what happens when it does. You don't have to despair amidst the prospects of novel viruses, malignant tumors, or debilitating diseases. Jesus' suffering and resurrection liberates you from death's paralysis. He secures the victory. Revelation 21. The same hands that were pounded into the tree for you will wipe away your sorrow-filled tears. And one day they will never return. Oh, how we long for that day when Jesus comes back. What do we do until then, though? We praise the Lord because He has subdued the sepulcher. While we as Christians will be 
eating delectable delights in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will have swallowed death for us. How can that not energize us to exalt the Lord? Don't let your circumstances suppress your singing. Regardless of the anxieties of life, see the God who is victorious in Christ and worship Him. Worship Him. But finally, we need to think about something else here. Praise the Lord amidst the pressures of life because of who He is. He's the Lord who is God. He's the Lord who is God. Verses 9 through 12. Remember that Isaiah was not appreciated by many in Judah. Most despised him and and rejected his ministry. Few would have liked his Facebook posts. No one would have received his be real pictures. And he certainly wouldn't have received very many Christmas cards. He was spurned and ill-treated. And so besides having to deal with Ahaz's poor leadership and foreign bullies trying to take over Judah, Isaiah faced alienation, derision, and persecution. Troubles encircled him. And considering them, what do you think Isaiah desired most? Verses 10 through 12 direct our attention to the judgment of God. Maybe, maybe that's what Isaiah desired. He was primarily seeking justice. While God's hand would rest upon his people, his foot would trample down Moab. The enemies of the Lord, those coming against Isaiah and the faithful, would be made into a dunghill, the text says. And it would be so bad, verse 11, they would be swimming in human waste, neck down. Their pride would give way to to putridness. God would bring judgment like he did to Sisera in Judges chapter 4. Do you remember that story? Where the Canaanite general died at the hands of the woman Jael who took a tent peg and pounded it into his skull while he slept. Or as what happened to Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. Recall that story? When he received the praises of the people, declaring him to be a god and not a man, the Lord struck him, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God will humble the boastful. Verse 12, no high tower, no fortification, no walls can keep him from doing so. The pompous he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground. Surely such a picture of coming wrath should lead us to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, lest He humble us in judgments. We are to fly to Christ, that Jesus would be our refuge, our salvation from what our sins deserve. There is a strong emphasis towards the end of this text on the justice of God that we might repent and and come to the only hope for sinners. Come to the one who took up the criminal's position on the cross for the guilty. Come to him who walked out of the tomb, conquering sin and death. 
Come to Christ. And you might be tempted to think that this justice spoken of in Isaiah 25, verses 10 through 12, is what the prophet desired most. I mean, after all, he's, he's being mistreated. Eventually, Isaiah will be sawn in half for the faith. You might assume that his deepest longing were, was for national threats to subside or a godly leader or the death of death that's spoken of in verses 7 through 8. And no doubt there's truth in all of this. I mean, I'm sure that on some level, Isaiah did desire these things, and rightly so. There's nothing wrong with it. But there was something that Isaiah wanted more. It was another desire that dwarfed all others. Did you catch it? Look at verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. What was it that Isaiah wanted above all? It was the Lord himself. Yes, deliverance was important to him. Victory over enemies and death were key. But it was God that had his eye. Two times the text says that that we have waited for him. And the stress is on the Lord. Above all things, Isaiah sought God. Is that where you are today? I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's nothing improper about praying for physical and emotional healing, justice to be served, peace in our world, provision for daily needs, death to be eliminated. All of that's good. But what do you want most? What is chief in your affections? When it comes down to it, what is your greatest desire? For your circumstances to change? Or for the God who is over your circumstances? Is it deliverance? Or the Lord who brings it? The benefits of Christ's work, as glorious as they are? Or Christ himself? Do you simply want what God can do for you? Or do you first want him? A young man came to see a pastor one day. Ryder talks about this. He was weeping uncontrollably. Minister thought to himself, I, I wonder what he did. Did he cheat on his wife? Is he enslaved to some sin? Or did he receive bad news about a loved one? Maybe it was himself. What has gripped this young man? that he would be this moved. So the pastor asked him, what's wrong? Do you know what he said? I just want to know God. I, I just want to know God. I desire Him above all. My friends, oh, that that would be us. That no matter what we face, 
the trial, or the trouble, that we would hunger for the Lord preeminently in good times and tough times, that our highest affection would be for Christ, and that it would be evident in this way, that we bless God despite our burdens. You might think to yourself, how is that possible? For me to to delight in God despite the difficulties of life. But we must understand something really important. Our worship is fueled by our wants. What do you principally want? Search your heart. Is it the Lord? What do you do if the Lord is not your chief desire? You go back to verse 9 in two simple words. Behold God. Behold God. You look at Jesus, who made the cross his crown, and the grave his footstool. And as one Puritan put it, You come and have your heart warmed at the fire of Christ's love and mercy. You say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for being spiritually cold. You repent. You repeatedly plead for stirred affections. You keep your eyes on Christ. And you declare of Jesus that he is the loveliest of 10,000 loves. And I want him above all. May that be the case for all of us today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our blessed Father, we come this morning to hear from your word. We ask that you would take it and use it in our lives, that we would praise you amidst the pressures of life, because we know that you are sufficient. We know that you are the Lord who is victorious, and we know that you are the God who loves us and who has proven it in Jesus. And so then we ask, O Lord, that you would stir up holy affections within us that we might seek your face, that we might hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we might pursue you with fresh vigor. Would you, by your Spirit, do such work 